Hi guys, welcome to our first topical podcast session today. Today, Melissa and I have two of our peers from the University of Sheffield, namely Nick and Ashwin with us. So Nick does international relations and politics, while Ashwin does mechanical engineering. So we will be discussing how different sectors are being affected by COVID-19 and how this pandemic is changing the world. In fact, we will be focusing on how various sectors are currently responding to this unprecedented crisis. First things first, before we begin, just to check everybody, how is everyone coping with the changes brought about by this pandemic? So for me, I just feel somewhat frustrated to a certain extent that because of this pandemic, I've not been able to do the things that I usually do, such as going out or attending class. But other than that, I'm coping just fine. What about you guys? Um, what about you, Ashwin? Yeah, I think um, it's been pretty all right so far. I think uh, it's definitely better than World War II. Uh, a lot of people have been drawing funny comparisons on the internet to that. Um, whereas, you know, just sitting down in Netflix at home isn't, isn't the worst thing in the world. Um, but yeah, virtual classes and virtual group projects um, can be quite a challenge, I think, from a student perspective. Um, but yeah, getting through it, I, I think so far it's been not too bad. Um, how about you, Mel? Uh, um, for me, I think pretty good because um, yeah, online classes and all that and practicals are disrupted. But I think for me personally, like cost, my cost aside, um, I think I've been doing quite good in a way that I, I suddenly have time to do a lot of things that I wanted to do but didn't have the time to. So, yeah, pretty good. How about you, Nick? I think there's definitely been like a psychological or mental challenge like for everyone. And in particular, I think um, it's affected me in terms of the course because there's lots of readings um, that we have to do. Sometimes we can't see our tutors because of the time difference and everything. Um, but overall, I guess it's, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world but it's definitely a challenge and we'll probably remember this for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I think definitely will in, 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 in the sense that like, like for many of us, because we study abroad, so coming back home and having to like do a, our university work at home, it's kind of like a big change, I think. Like for me, it, in terms of like focusing is much harder right now as well, because like home is like home, you know, compared to where you know for a fact that you're supposed to be like working hard there. So that is the main problem. But that being said, like, we should move on to like, the core of what this, session of, this podcast session is about. So I think that we should, it'll be appropriate to begin with uh, Malaysia's COVID-19 response. So personally, I feel that Malaysia has responded rather well uh, to this COVID-19. Like the government has taken the right steps. Uh, in general terms, they've taken the right steps. But let's just focus specifically on... Um, when the pandemic started in Malaysia. So um, as many people would be aware, the pandemic started sometime when Malaysia was having some sort of like political developments whereby there was a change in government and all that. So I'd just like to move to Nick um, first. Um, do you think that um, the political developments during the initial stages of COVID-19 in Malaysia somewhat affected um, the coronavirus response in the country? I think in the short term, it definitely did. Because when we talk about politics or institutions, we always have to talk about governance or government. And in, 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 in that sense, um, the political development or rather transition in government um, between the Pakatan Haran government to the Prikatan national government has been somewhat of a, of a messy 
label as kind of like a backdoor installment, some of them. Um, but it is, uh, whether we like it or not, a legitimate form of government. Um, so in that sense, yes, I've, for, I believe that political developments have um, affected the initial stages of the coronavirus responses because um, I think the government found it quite a shock, especially a lot of controversies surrounding um, many different government officials as well. Um, but in the long run, I think Malaysia, especially the government at the time, um, has done pretty well to uh, cope with the coronavirus. But the initial stages, I definitely feel like um, it took a, quite a while for them to decide whether to lock down or not to lock down. Um, and especially with uh, initial developments of tracing, um, now you can see if you read in the news a couple of days ago, you can see that once they identify this cluster uh, of coronavirus, it's immediately like everyone in that cluster is tested, whilst in the beginning it was nothing like that. So I think definitely it's improved over time and Malaysia's, like, as you said, done rather well to respond to the pandemic. Yeah, I think like just focusing on that point, like so we, we, we generally agree that, you know, um, the coronavirus response in Malaysia has been somewhat united. Like um, all actors have kind of like refrained from the politicking that would have taken place in normal circumstances if what had happened in the change of government occurred in a normal political scenario. But because of this pandemic, it has been quite united. Like the opposition and the government have kind of like refrained from politically attacking each other. But this brings us to what has happened. It, it feels like the unity between like all sides has kind of like broken down to a certain extent in in recent days in the sense that like um we have seen like state governments defying um the federal government directives to like ease the lockdown to have what they call a uh, cmco rather than the usual mco so what, what do you think about that like th there seems to be a conflict between the federal and state government like what do you think would be the long-term implications of this not just on the pandemic but the response to the pandemic but also the country as a whole yeah, I mean, firstly, I think it's important to highlight that um, for everyone who doesn't necessarily do politics or read so much about the news is that state governments, in terms of healthcare responses, state governments and state governments are allowed to defy federal governments. Um, that's not always the case, but in terms of healthcare or emergency crisis, um, state governments are allowed to defy federal governments. Um, and I think um, doing this CMCO or conditional MCO has kind of prompted a lot of these political actors to get their political mind back on and kind of start that essential kind of new process of politicking because CMCO means that um, you, could, you could also frame the argument that you're ready to have a parliament sitting, um, which we haven't had in, I think, over a month. Um, so yeah, there's like a lot of media sensationalism in terms of um, several state governments uh, attacking the federal government for not consulting with them, um, which we didn't really see previously during the initial stages of the MCO. But now that we're start Malaysia starting to come out of the shell, starting to um, eliminate all the clusters, identify them, and now that we're starting to get everything back under control, everyone's thinking, okay, now it's my opportunity to polit politically rise up or because everyone in politics, it's, it's kind of like a game. Everyone wants like a promotion or something better for themselves um, or rather the entire objective is to defeat the opposition. So yeah, I feel like this conditional MCO has kind of prompted um, kind of like the rejuvenation of like po politicking in, in, in Malaysia. 
Yeah, I think that like this pandemic kind of like gives the opportunity for state governments to defy the federal government um, because like as if people are not for people for those who are not aware of this, like Malaysia is a federation, so the federal government has, but our federation is a kind of federation where the federal government has a lot of authority over state governments. But it's important that health is under a concurrent list in the federal constitution, which means that the federal government and the state government have joint um, responsibility over that area. So I think that to a certain extent, state governments, if they feel that, you know, federal directives are not beneficial to their state, a lot of them are deciding to actually put their foot down and say that um, we're going to do things differently. So this would definitely have a significant impact on federal state relations in Malaysia, but that should be a topic for another day, but that is a very good point to raise. But so this leads us now, let's talk about a little bit of like scientific sort of aspect of things. So, um, so now this is, there's a CMCO in Malaysia, like, like, what do you think about the debate between the economy and the health? Like, like, is it right? Like, how, how, where do you strike the balance between prioritizing the economy or prioritizing health? Because there is a debate right now that some people are saying that the CMCO is actually prioritizing the economy over health. So what, are, what is your take on that? I think my take on it is that we can't really strike a balance between the economy or the health when in terms of um, navigating this pandemic. It's either in terms of MCO, CMCO, it's still going to have a lot of effect on the economy. So technically, you're still choosing between health or economy by deciding to implement MCO or whether CMCO, because even if it's a CMCO, it, it still means that you have to work from home. So there, there, it's really hard to strike the balance. Of the reasons why people be those who are more focused on the health the health consequences of a cmco um you know some would bring up the idea of an obedient society like is malaysia or are malaysians obedient enough to actually follow social distancing rules because we are a society in which you know everybody we are a society that goes out a lot for instance we, we like to mingle around and all that so the question then becomes and the concern is are our people obedient enough to follow social distancing? So this just wants, this brings me to like ask like Melissa, like, you know, um, because um, this social distancing would need to be carried out until a cure can be found for this coronavirus. Like people are talking about a vaccine, for instance. So how, how long is it going to take before a vaccine can be um, discovered? Okay, so, um, so you can look at, from a scientific point of view, right, you can look at either creating a vaccine or creating a drug. So a vaccine would be um, injecting someone with something that will prevent them from getting the COVID-19 virus again. Or a drug which is um, injecting someone who, is, or who has already been affected by COVID-19. So um, apparently it's much harder to create a drug, which is why everyone has been focusing more on creating a vaccine. But the problem with creating a vaccine is that it actually takes ages. So like for a typical drug, for like a normal day, not, not like a viral pandemic or whatever, it usually takes like more than five years, maybe five to 15 years. But the problem with COVID-19 is that we can't wait that long because obviously it spreads so fast and yeah. people are dying. So, um, so what has been done? Okay, so, um, okay, so like uh, summarizing, I don't want to get like too into detail about clinical trials, but like um, usually how it works is that there are many different stages to creating to creating a drug or a vaccine. So there's preclinical trials and then there's clinical trials which consists of phase one, phase two, and phase three. 
So, okay. yeah, so usually we spend several years in each phase. And then once the phases have been completed, and then we start producing the drugs. So what companies have been doing or what um, organizations have been doing with COVID-19 is that they are producing the drugs before they even enter the clinical trials. So they are doing preclinical trials and then they are already simultaneously creating the drugs so that, you know, you, so that we don't waste time basically. And the problem why, why people don't do that with normal drugs is obviously because of the cost. Because what if the drug doesn't pass all of the stages and then, you know, all of the production material goes to waste. But then with COVID-19, okay. everyone is contributing money and everything. So cost is not really a problem. So um, most scientists think that we would get a vaccine in 18 months, which is pretty long, like it's more than a year. But some, some people think that it can be out in nine months. So um, currently the progress is that uh, we have, I think, three vaccines that are already in phase two. Um, mm-hmm. And okay, so all of the vaccines that are currently being created, I think there are about 115. And then okay. around three to eight look quite promising. And they are the, the most advanced one is in phase two. So yeah, so that, that is about vaccine. And the thing is that it's not only about how long we produce it, uh, how long it takes to produce it, uh, how long it takes to test the drug, but also how long it takes to produce it. So if let's say we find a drug that has already passed all stages, right? Like has already completed phase three. Okay. The problem would also be taking time to produce 7 billion um, doses of the drug Ooh, or maybe yeah. even, yeah, or maybe yeah. even 14 billion if it's a double dose drug. So that would also take a lot of time. <laughs> So the problem is that probably if they produce drugs, it will probably be given to like the priority people, maybe like the frontliners or maybe, um, yeah, like I don't think it's going to take like a short time for the drug to actually reach us. Yeah. So, Wait, do you mean drug or vaccine? A vaccine, sorry. So okay, that means okay, like right. whichever it is, like the vaccine or the drug, let's say that, you know, they have it in like say nine months, like that is the most like, positive thing that we can that we've been hearing right now people are mm-hmm. saying you know perhaps have it in nine months but even if they successfully develop it within nine months what you're saying is that we probably not everybody would be able to get the vaccine yet because it's going to take an even longer time to produce the sufficient numbers right mm-hmm. yeah okay so then this leads mm-hmm. us to a point that like until like the vaccine can reach everybody and there's also what people are saying right now which is that you know those who have, like some people have debunked the idea of a herd immunity because there are, some people have said that despite you being, despite you having recovered from COVID-19, there is a likelihood of you contracting it again. So this means that until we have a vaccine or a drug, which is going to take a very long time based on what Mel has just said, um, lots of people would probably still contract this virus, especially when social distancing is being eased and all that. So this leads us to the point of how um, the ordinary way of how we're dealing with the virus is that true the ventilators are absolutely vital in this process. Like hospitals need this because people are facing problems with breathing and pneumonia and all that. So I'd just like to ask Ashwin from like, you know, an engineering aspect, like um, um, how is the production of ventilators going? I mean, there are some countries that say that they have an excess of ventilators, whereas some are saying that they're not having and companies are being persuaded to um, build more ventilators. Um, what is your take on that? 
Yeah, so I, th I think one thing which is kind of beautiful in a sense coming out of this whole uh, pandemic, not to say any, any, most of it is not really that beautiful, but one thing yeah. that really is, um, is that, you know, you start to see the whole world really coming together. And mm -hmm. um, you start to see, you know, engineers in New Zealand, engineers in China, US, they don't, they don't care where you're from. Um, they're just trying to work together to find solutions. And it's not really just ventilators, which a lot of people tend to overlook. Um, ventilators are a big part of it because this, this, the way the virus affects people is mainly, um, it, yeah, I think the main cause of death is, uh, Melissa, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's because of poor ventilation and not being able to yes. um, breathe properly. Um, so what a ventilator really is, is, is just like a balloon, which you put, um, you know, you force air into a person's lungs and then you take it out. Um, so, so, um, seems, seems simple, but then there's a lot of things that you need to consider. If you force too much air, you know, you can mm -hmm. damage people's lung alveoli, which is like little sacs inside their lungs. Yeah. Um, so all these things are being considered and they're trying to find, um, systems, you know, ways to develop ven ventilators at a mass scale at a very low cost. So cost is really the main engineering challenge here. Um, because it's it's you know ventilators are have been around for hundreds mm -hmm. of years right yes um, maybe, i'm not sure if it's hundreds but many many years um but you know developing good ventilators at a very low cost is the real challenge um so what what we've seen is uh, i think there's one company in india which managed to design um an iphone based ventilator so, so like not iphone mm -hmm. uh, a phone based ventilator a smartphone based so it uses the processor in the typical smartphone to to collect data based on the person and provide air based on exactly what the person would need um so we're starting to see loads of these kinds of projects and you know there many of them are going open source many of them are just you know freely being um given out um and worked upon all over the world so on top of ventilators, it's also PPE. It's also, uh, you know, typical masks and stuff like that. Um, engineers are trying to find ways to mass produce that as well. Um, you know, gloves has also been, you know, a big issue. So in Malaysia, we actually have uh, some of the world's most major glove manufacturers within our own yes. country. Um, and uh, yeah, what we're seeing is there, there are issues with shortage. There are issues with finding labor in all these engineering companies. Um, Cause a lot of people, you know, um, these are, these are actually considered essential services. So yes. people are still required to come to work, but then, you know, you have people who um, are sick and the moment they get mm -hmm. any form of sickness, uh, no matter how, you know, how, uh, you know, insignificant, it's something that, you know, they have to stay at home. Another thing that people have been looking at is also, um, you know, developing these kinds of uh, infrared, well, sorry, temperature sensing equipment. So to put in schools, to put in, um, you know, offices and stuff like that. So people can see if you're, um, if you're having a fever and mm -hmm. then immediately the computer would say, hey, uh, best not to come to the office today. So this is for once MCO starts to be lifted in stages, because yep. obviously we can't close the economy too long because that might have even more detrimental impact yes. um, on the livelihoods uh, on the lives of people you know um, so it's really it's really a lot of that kind of stuff happening in the engineering world right now um, a lot of discussion a lot of collaboration and uh, hopefully we get fast we get somewhere a lot faster 
Yeah. Um, so because the ventilators have been used in like the health service for a very long time now, um, is just out of curiosity, like are the ventilators that are being used for like COVID-19 any different from the usual ventilators that are being used? Like, like, is it like of like a better capacity or something like that? Because like obviously this, this virus is of course much stronger and much more lethal than compared to other viruses. Um, actually, the issue doesn't really lie within there. So like typical normal ventilators work. Mm -hmm. The problem is they just don't have enough normal ventilators. Right. Okay. That, so, so you could use a normal ventilator, like, uh, which is existing in current hospitals, um, mm -hmm. and they'd be fine. So, um, but yeah, the, the challenge is, okay, imagine it this way. If you have a hospital which has a capacity of 300 beds, right? So yeah. that means, say, you only have 300 ventilators. You have 1,000 people suddenly coming in. And I think mm -hmm. this is the whole idea of flattening the curve, right? Yes. You have 1,000 people coming in. 700 people don't have access to those ventilators. Um, so the idea that engineers are trying to work on right now is to develop those ventilators to give to those to, to um, give capacity to all these hospitals to take on more patients and to handle the situation better. Um, but honestly, the main way to stop this is really to reduce the number of people going to hospitals, and which is by social distancing. Um, so that can't be emphasized enough. Like if everyone really social distances and takes full attention to these guidelines, like it would save engineers, healthcare workers, um, everyone who's trying to combat the situation a lot of, you know, a, a lot of lives, really. Yeah. Yeah. So this kind of like leads us to the point of like how we can identify as many people as we can having the virus so that when lockdown is being eased or when the economy completely reopens, like the likelihood of the number of people having the virus and passing it to other people can be mitigated. So this, one's, this leads me to want to um, bring back Nick into the conversation, which is like... Um, about concerns of a second outbreak, basically, on the, on the political aspect. Like, um, do you have anything to say about, like, contact tracing in Malaysia? Like, like is, is, do you think, that, is Malaysia doing enough with regard to contact tracing, like, like the way South Korea has been handling it in order to prevent a second outbreak? I think in the way Malaysia's economy is structured and how we're kind of in the middle between the more economically developed countries, the MEDCs, mm -hmm. and the LEDCs, which are the less economically developed countries, Malaysia's kind of in the middle. And less economically developed countries, such as, I'd say, Indonesia is one, even though we have a large GDP, GDP per capita is capped at like three dollars to $4,000 um, US dollars a year, which is nothing, which is less than... Um, Malaysia's GDP per capita is 11,000 and MEDCs are <laughs> above 20,000. So Malaysia is in that unique situation where um, it really depends whether or not the economy can, uh, can sustain itself, which is why um, I said previously, like um, questioning economy and health is such a difficult question or a confusing question rather, because we don't really know the implications of that until uh, the outbreak is over. So for example, other countries in, in the UK, they have a rainy day fund, which means that they can afford to say, hey, we're gonna pay 80% of all your staff in corporations. Malaysia and other countries can't do that. So in terms of contract tracing, I think Malaysia's going back to the question of contract tracing, South Korea is obviously a slightly more advanced country technologically than Malaysia. And what they've done is um, they've instituted, like they have, they've developed an app to, to, to develop um, coronavirus cases. So in specific yes. regions, in let's say one city, you can open mm -hmm. up the app and say, it tells you which, um, 
which regions you, you should avoid. And in Malaysia, we can't do that. But what Malaysia's done is Malaysia's identified, let's say, if there's a cluster in KL, one <laughs> specific cluster in a region in KL, they'll test every single person from that cluster. So it's not an ad as advanced, but it's also kind of an adaptive measure towards not being able to have that contact tracing. Whilst other countries, for so for example, right now I'm in Indonesia, we don't have that at all. Um, the, the only thing people are allowed to do is if you have symptoms, or let's say if you are um, you know, suspected of having the virus, you go to the nearest hospital and you wait your turn for the test. Um, so there's not really kind of government mechanism other than our own version of the MCO, which we have in place um, to mitigate that circumstances. So comparing all these three circumstances, Malaysia, I think, has, we don't really know whether it's enough yet until um, the outbreak's over. But in terms of um, economic capability, Malaysia's done, done um, enough in terms of um, where, where it's currently standing in like the economic MEDC in the middle and the LEDCs. Yeah, I think that contact tracing is actually very important in this regard. And like, it's understandable if uh, less economically developed countries don't really have the capacity to trace and track everybody as efficiently as countries have in South Korea. And there's currently like a debate about migrant workers, as we've seen in Singapore, because like Singapore is a very good example of a country that at the beginning stages of the outbreak, like they were widely praised by the world for handling the crisis really well. But in the past week or so, like the number of cases in Singapore has spiked significantly because of like clusters amongst migrant workers, which is, which is an issue that worries many Malaysians. And in fact, like the Director General of Health in Malaysia has also been facing questions about um, testing migrant workers because they often live in very um, tight um, places and all that. So obviously um, the likelihood of them contracting the virus is of course rather high or as high as anybody else actually. And um, this is an issue with the second outbreak thing. So, like, because Malaysia lives in a tropical country, I'd just like to ask, like, Mel, like, um, should Malaysia be more worried of the prospects of a second outbreak because, like, we live in a tropical country? Like, um, is, is, uh, are tropical countries more likely to develop such diseases like COVID-19? I think we are more likely to actually develop, so, like, the starting point of the virus, for mm -hmm. example, because as a tropical country, we have a lot more... Uh, insects, bugs, animals, we have like bats and stuff which um, colder countries don't have. So we are more likely because these kind of um, these kind of pandemics, they happen more oftenly when a virus or a disease is transmitted between an animal to a human and that is when okay. like things like become messy and stuff. So yeah, so yeah, I think we are more likely to develop at the starting point just because we have more animals and insects. But in terms of the second outbreak, I don't think like our climate has anything to do with that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because that was just a concern that I, I think that some people might have because of like the CMCO. Many people feel actually, that... Mature, actually that. Yes, sorry, sorry. Yeah, I, I actually heard that... Um, you know, the warmer the temperature, the, you know, warmer climate areas seem to have a much lower rate of spreading. Um, what, do, what do you know about that? And like, has there been any uh, news about that recently that you guys have heard of? I, I haven't read anything about that. But um, yeah, I, I'm not really sure about that. And I don't want to say anything that's wrong. But yeah. like, 
but like um in terms of okay going back to like um maybe like chris in terms of like um governments do you think that um country like asian countries like for example singapore malaysia do you think that we are more prepared for this kind of uh, epidemics or pandemics compared to the western countries like uk us where they where they haven't really faced something of this scale before whereas like for example singapore and malaysia we have experienced like the sars sars epidemic so yeah what do you think um, yes, I think that's a very like timely point to raise because like, um, yes, it is true that I think that to a certain extent, like many Asian countries, like um, I'm not too sure about Malaysia, but like many Asian countries such as like South Korea and like China, for instance, and Hong Kong um, were quite prepared for this virus because in the sense that like, obviously, like they're not prepared in the sense that they, did, they didn't know that the virus is actually going to, when, when's the outbreak going to begin and all that. But the way they've responded to it has been quite um, has been quite prompt, has been quick, because they have an experience with how severe this virus can get. Um, which is one of the points that I'd like to bring up. But like we'll have to bring up like South Korea again, because like um, they dealt with the, a couple of years ago, they had the MERS outbreak, Middle, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome outbreak, or something like that. It's called MERS. Um, so when that outbreak occurred, like they were actually like they they took some time to respond to it, but ever since that MERS outbreak like about in 20 like a couple of years ago like South Korea has been really prepared for a pen for a, a virus of that sort to actually happen again which is why they've actually immediately got the idea that they need to conduct mass testing because that was what they did with MERS so in that regard many countries mm. like Asian countries like South Korea were very well prepared so it was Hong Kong as well. So it was China in terms of the SARS outbreak. Well, some people would argue that China didn't respond well to it in the beginning. Well, that is a completely different story. But as of now, they've seemed to contain it rather well, as far as I'm aware of it, um, as far as official statistics uh, is concerned. Um, could, I, could I also add something? Yes, yes, go ahead. Yeah, I think your point's really good in terms of um, the level of preparedness uh, associated mm. with, like, the response systems but i think yes. there's also an additional variable which is like the the action you take in the beginning or at the mm -hmm. institution level is not necessarily correlated with your level of preparedness so for example um new zealand um um hong kong and taiwan um what made them like right now they're not even in lockdown these three countries um yes. Because I've got friends in Hong Kong and Taiwan who are going out with their families, who are attending university classes and everything like that. So that could also be down to the level of preparedness, such as South Korea. But I think an additional variable as well is the fact that they've taken action when their first cases were announced. So, for yes. example, in New Zealand, immediately when they announced their first uh, cases, they banned all flights to Wuhan shortly after China, shortly after lockdown. Three stages which were done in quick succession, which then immediate uh, allowed them to eliminate all the clusters of the virus. And now they're not even in lockdown anymore. So level of preparedness, I think is definitely one thing. Healthcare system is also another thing, but in terms <laughs> of the institutional wide level, taking action, like in the beginning, I think we've seen a lot of success or case studies from countries like Taiwan, Hong Kong and yeah. New Zealand, because they've done this first responder um, kind of system where immediately after they've announced their first case, they've taken quick action. So now yes. that, so now their economies are, they're going to bounce back much easier than a lot of the other countries. For example, like the UK or the US, um, who haven't really been paying attention 
with like how fast this virus can um, can spread. And therefore, even though their healthcare systems are way more, well, could be a bit more advanced or about the same level as these three countries that I previously mentioned, because they didn't take that first responder action system, they're not, like you've now seen how big this pandemic can actually grow. Yeah. If I might add, like um, comparisons about countries, like the, the core of the argument I'm making is that like experience probably matters in dealing with such pandemics. Definitely. Very unprecedented situation. But like, I think that it's, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult to actually compare like um, um, why are Asian countries, for instance, more prepared than Western countries? Because we can't just like um, group every Asian country together because like many people would have expected, like, uh, like many people thought that Japan handled it really well. But as we've seen right now, um, Japan currently has like a second outbreak in um, Hokkaido, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, um, so like, it's, it's very hard to group things together. Like everybody thought that Singapore was handling it really well as well, which they actually did. But in terms of like the migrant workers that I've just mentioned, which were not tested initially. So it, 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 it brings us to the point that basically that um, it's very hard to actually compare like the Western response and the Asian response because every country will respond to it differently. But I would say that like, Perhaps many people argue that the response in, say, Europe was slower than, say, like, like Nick mentioned, like the, the promptness of the response was slower because, like, when we see, like, in China, for instance, like, Wuhan was put into the lockdown immediately. Whereas if we compare it to, like, in Britain, like, a lockdown wasn't even imposed until much later on. In fact, like, um, the first course of action, like, um, like social distancing wasn't really uh, enforced in the UK as immediately as other Asian countries did. And like many people have criticized the government for taking initiatives for simply advocating ideas such as wash your hands only rather than um, closing down schools and all that. But this, this makes me want to like emphasize that like I don't think governments can be really judged right now because um, this is an unprecedented situation. Like um, scientists have differing opinions on how this should be handled. People have different opinions on whether face masks are useful. In fact, like even countries like Sweden have taken a different approach to countries to, in, in the rest of the world in terms of lockdown and all that. So it's very difficult to actually judge which country is more efficient and which country was less efficient in dealing with this virus until we actually solve this pandemic and actually look at the numbers specifically. So, yeah, and uh, I think it's... I think it's important yeah. to note that we're, we're not really just trying to point fingers at, hey, this country screwed up, this country didn't do the best job, this country was great. I think it's really, the dialogue should really be um, about, and like what we're really talking about all this for is really to learn from the countries that had, did, that had done it right, um, if not in early stages, because it might be too late already to impl implement that in our own countries. Um, I think it's also about like just learning what they've been doing um, later stages in the outbreak and what maybe we could copy, you know, models that are currently working. Yeah, which just, which just like, leads me to like want to ask like now, like perhaps one of the final questions would be like, um, um, do you think that this pandemic, like in the best case scenario, once we've had the vaccine out and once it's been given to everybody who needs the vaccine, like do you think that this pandemic would just be over? right after this? Like, like, will we not hear of it again after a vaccine is produced? I think definitely, like, uh, definitely not because pandemics can happen anytime, basically. It's like, it's like very, it's like you don't see it coming. So definitely we can't say that um, in terms of other uh, different types of diseases, maybe, we can't say that um, none is 
none at this bad is coming after COVID-19. But definitely, mm-hmm. I feel that um, when this thing is over, the world will not be the same as it was before, where we, where everyone would be a lot more prepared for something like this to happen. Because when this hit, I think a lot of people from this generation, at least, they have never experienced something this big before. So if it happens again in the near future, um, I think we definitely would be more prepared. Maybe like governments would would implement like restricted movements earlier or something like that. So, yeah, I feel like there's, there's no way to say, like, okay, so in terms of COVID-19, I also don't feel like it will just immediately go away. Definitely, it will be, like, a slow, yeah, stay slow decline. Yeah, yeah, mm. so, yeah, I think we will be seeing, we, we will still be seeing COVID-19 for quite a while. And if it happens again in the future with another disease, I don't think it would be as bad as this one, hopefully. So, yes. so Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ashwin, like just a final point, like one of the fi- perhaps probably the final point. Um, what do you have to say? Like, so we've basically established the fact that like um, um, there was a lack of ventilators in the beginning to deal with this pandemic, with this disease. Um, so many companies have been told to step up to play to produce more ventilators and all that. So in anticipation of a, a likely pandemic or epidemic in the near future, or in, in the times like down the road, um, do, do you think that um, more ventilators should just perhaps be produced like and stored, for instance, uh, as, a, as, as a way of preparing for a, a scenario whereby something of this sort happens again? Like, like should, should companies, should engineering companies be ready for such a thing again? To occur again? I, think that's, I think that's a really good question. Um, and I think there's also a very complex answer to that because the thing is, you don't really know what the next disease is going to look like. You don't know mm-hmm. whether it's also going to need the same kind of equipment, yeah. whether it's going to attack the same parts of the body. Um, and there's so many variables. Um, I think rather than mass producing ventilators right now, um, uh, like for the future, I think one thing that would be good is to, to just get more engineers thinking about the problem of cost rather than the problem of making loads of money. Um, from designing medical equipment. I think there, if there were a lot of low-cost um, medical equipment out there, which would also mm-hmm. help loads of underdeveloped countries currently um, and reduce the cost of healthcare, I think mm-hmm. that would be something that could, could be more valuable um, in saving the world the next time around. Yeah. So, yeah. Or, or, or perhaps there should be like a shift to like, you know, the sort of like technological advancements that they're seeing right now, such as like, an app to like you know to, like trace yeah. like, who has the disease like perhaps such a such an app perhaps would be more useful to prepare for such pandemics because it probably can be used in any circumstance rather than ventilators in which we are unsure of whether the next pandemic would require that right definitely maybe maybe that could that could actually be mm-hmm. something quite promising yeah yeah I think that's something that we all have to think about then like you know um, how do we what steps can we take to 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 ensure that we'll be ready for this which just leads me to like Nick like do you have any final thoughts to add about how um, governments in the future can respond to this and how, like, you know, should, should, should politics be more ready for such pandemics, such epidemics, for instance? Like, because we've seen that responses have been slow. Like, but how can um, policymakers, for instance, ensure that we are ready to act more promptly in the future? I think the policy, in terms of policy, um, 
there's a lot of preventative measures that you can take and you can learn uh, from this pandemic. But also, as, as Ashvin previously mentioned, we don't know, or I think Ashvin or Mal, I don't really remember, but we don't really know um, what kind of disease is going to be next or what kind of issue could be next. Um, so it's all a, I think politics is essentially, in terms of whether it's intranational or supranational, um, it's all about moving towards the trend of issues so that um, in terms of national governments, he can obtain voters in terms of international governments in order to satisfy all the states. So this, the next big issue could, could also not be a health issue, could be a nuclear security issue, which is why mm -hmm. um, I was also going to make a last point that um, the mediation of information goes where the trend is. So for example, yes, we definitely won't see the end of this COVID pandemic because of the economy. It's predicted to restart in 2021, 2022. Um, and we're going to see tons of analysis, tons of projections on how this pandemic, or rather the post-mortem of this pandemic, is affected, um, has affected the economy. But on the other hand, there could be like another sensationalized new security issue or like another sensationalized environmental issue that could just suddenly flip the switch just like that. And suddenly we're not talking about COVID anymore because it's over. So, yeah, I think policymakers, in terms of what they have to respond, is is form policies that do that have preventative actions um, in terms of steps. So, for example, healthcare. South Korea was like, mm -hmm. okay, uh, we learned from the MERS outbreak um, that our health response systems weren't that good, and that the person who actually got the MERS disease in 2014 or 2015 had to go to multiple hospitals before it was confirmed. Yes. So, what they did was they ramped up their health response systems in each hospital so that once that person who got COVID went in, they're tested in that same hospital. So, mm -hmm. It's not necessarily in terms of um, specific policy measures, but rather generalized um, institutional measures that we can learn in terms of setting the institutions, whether it's from a top-down perspective or a down-up. So it's just making sure that these steps are clear-cut and that people can actually, or citizens of that state, can actually follow through with that um, before another outbreak or another issue happens like that. Yes, and I think that um, the, um, what I would say is that like, um, the sharing of information is actually very, very important right now because what we're seeing right now in, in terms of like international relations is that uh, like countries such as Australia, France, um, the US, and even to a certain extent the UK, I think, voiced out concerns that like, you know, China did not share the information that they should have shared about COVID-19 from the very beginning. And that has led to accusations made mostly by the US that the WHO, the World Health Organization, is not, is, is you know, a, a tool of, like, China and stuff like that. Well, I think that such accusations brings all balls down to, like, the provision of information about such illnesses from the very beginning. So, you know, this is just a food for thought in the sense that, like, perhaps um, um, we need a more non-partisan approach to issues of health and all that. And information definitely needs to be shared with regard to health, be it if it's your friend or, for your, or your foe and all that, because lives are more important than uh, um, politics in such instances. So I think that we've covered most of the things over here. Like Mel, do you want to like wrap up what we have established from this podcast? Yeah, I think just to wrap it up, like we've, we've talked about, from a student's point of view, we've talked about what many different fields have been doing to handle this pandemic. So we've heard from the engineering point of view, politics and bioscience. And I think it's very easy because a lot of people are doing everything now, like, oh, you know, the frontliners are like, helping patients and all and 
it's very easy to feel helpless as students because we feel like we can't do anything. Like we can't even go to university. We're just sitting at <laughs> home. So I think one thing to remember is that there's one thing that's very important that we should do, which is to stay at home and don't walk around and do like, yeah, basically social distancing and just stay at home because it really gives a huge impact on how this virus will progress because uh, we can see that from the MCO, the numbers have gone down. So now, even though the MCO is like slightly lifted, I think we should still be very aware of what we do, where we go. And yeah, so hopefully we, this thing ends soon and we can go back to uni. So yeah, yeah. I think that's the end of our second episode. Uh, thank you, Ashwin and Nick, for joining us today. Um, do you guys want to plug anything? Ashwin, you want to plug your Ash keys? Oh, wait, no. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> but thank you so thank much, you guys. This is so fun. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, we have new episodes out every Friday, and we are on uh, Facebook and Instagram as Sound On Podcasting, and we are also on YouTube and Spotify as Sound On. Thank you. See you next awesome. week. Bye. See you guys. Bye.